everybody. It's good to be back. We went to uh, Wisconsin to Jillian, my youngest daughter's graduation. Yes, you heard that right. My youngest daughter has graduated from college. <laughs> I still think of her as eight, so that's a problem for me, but uh, we're glad to be back. Uh, we want to invite children first through third grade to our children's church. The teacher will meet you in the back. It's just a a setting where you can, uh, the children can hear scriptures and learn about Jesus in a more age-appropriate way. Um, I wanted to first say thank you, Dan, for filling in for me last week. We listened to the sermon while we were traveling. We had a couple-hour drive from uh, Appleton to Milwaukee, so we listened. Um, one of the things that Dan mentioned last week was that it was so cool last week when he preached, but he said, you know, when I'm here, it's going to be in the hundreds, and, you know, interpret that as you will. Um, it just, that reminded me of a quote that I wanted to share. Uh, this is from Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher. He said, consume all obstacles, heavenly fire, and give us now both hearts of flame and tongues of fire to preach your reconciling word for Jesus' sake. So, you know, make of that what you will, you know, if you want to interpret the, the temperature. <laughs> um, just being silly. Thanks again, Dan. I thought you did a very good job. So uh, he, he kind of set us up for this week, leading into this now what will be an ongoing conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities. And uh, I think Dan did a fine job setting us up. Let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll take a look at God's word. Um, Father, one of the lyrics we just sang was that we live in dark times. Lord, we live in troubled, difficult times. And uh, Lord, as we look around our nation, um, it does feel very very conflicted. Uh, it feels as though as a nation we've lost our direction, our course. And so, Lord, I just pray for our nation that uh, you would spark revival. Uh, Lord, you've done it in the past uh, on, a nation, on, a, on a large scale basis. You have brought revival to this nation. You have wakened people up from their sin, from their slumbers to the glory of Christ. And, and Lord, we pray earnestly, would you please do that again? in our nation. We are in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, have mercy on us. And Lord, I think uh, one of the, the symptoms of that this week that came out was a man shooting senators playing baseball. Um, that he, he was so convinced that that was the answer, was to shoot our senators. Lord, this is terrible. We have gotten to the point where we can't even have civil discourse. It results to uh, despising each other and to looking down on each other. Lord, we pray for Senator Scalise, and we pray that uh, uh, you would continue to heal him, uh, recover him. He is a father, uh, a husband. Um, he has children, and Lord, we pray that you would restore his health. Father, I thank you that there was a senator who was um, a medic in the military standing right there. So when uh, Senator Scalise was shot, he was given immediate and appropriate battlefield attention. Um, Lord, I thank you for the Capitol, uh, Capitol Police who were present, who put themselves in harm's way and took the gunmen out and, and ended the carnage. Lord, I pray as a nation we would learn from this, that we would smart from this, not just look and say, well, that's the other side, so we don't care. But, Lord, that we would see human beings being injured, human beings being behaving abominably. And, Lord, that we would, as your church, offer the balm of the gospel as hope. Lord, have mercy on us, we pray. Father, now as we turn to your word, as we turn to hear the story of Jesus, Lord, we pray that uh, you would send your Holy Spirit to us, 
to open our eyes to see what you say, to open our hearts to believe what you say, and to learn to walk closer with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, starting now in chapter 20, like I said, this is really moving into the final stages of Jesus' ministry on earth. It's coming into this conflict period. Um, the, the conflicts from now on are just going to keep ratcheting up. And so from about chapter 19 and previous, it was really focused on the disciples and what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Um, now it's this, this final stage of Jesus going to the cross. And we still are going to learn what it means to follow Jesus Christ, but we're going to learn in the setting of conflict, which might actually be helpful for us these days. Um, so what we're going to see this morning is uh, the, the uh, leaders, the religious leaders, come to Jesus with a question, and he gives them a question, and then finally, we'll, in the, the end, we'll see an answer. So it's the question, the question, the answer. It's, that's how it's going to break out. So this is how Luke starts. He says, one day. This is a typical Luke way to start things. He's not being specific three days after Jesus cleansed the temple or the day after. He just says, oh, once. <laughs> At some point, this happened. So Jesus, after he's had this, this conflict where he cleanses the temple, um, he is now in the temple area, and he's teaching the people. He's just there teaching. And, and it says in, um, in the ESV, it says preaching the gospel. But actually, the word preaching is not there. <laughs> what it says is he's in the temple teaching and gospeling. He is, he is telling people about the, the kingdom of God. That's, that's his role now. He's, he's, the crowds cheered him as he came into the city, and now he's spending time with them. After he's chased away the money vendors or the, uh, the, um, the money changers in the temple, after he's wept over Jerusalem, now he he's, comes in as their loving, tender, caring teacher who's going to tell them about the kingdom of God. So he's sitting there and he's talking with them, and it says that the scribes, or the chief, the scribes, and the elders came up to him. Um, they come to him to challenge him. They come with a question. Tell us by what authority you do these things and who gave you this authority. And notice they do it in front of the crowd. They do it in front of the people. They could have come when Jesus was alone with his disciples. They could have, like Nicodemus, come to him at night. But they chose specifically to come to him when he's in the temple in front of the crowd and they challenge him. Um, Jesus had already warned us this was coming. He had told us earlier, this is going to happen. In Luke chapter 9, it's exactly the same people. Luke chapter 9, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. And they're now who show up to challenge him. And he says he will be killed and on the third day raised uh, from the dead. So Jesus has already told you this is coming. So we should be ready for this. So these guys show up and they ask him a question. Now, I can't do this in an American setting, so imagine you're British for a moment. Because we don't have a national church, so we can't do this. So imagine you're British for a moment, and you're teaching, and suddenly in walks the local businessmen, the most important people in the community. The, the council members, the, the, uh, the city council members come in. Uh, the local constable, the chief of police comes in. Your local bishop is standing there. And then the Archbishop of Canterbury walks in and says, we have a question for you. Instead of selling delegates or sending you know, an email or something, these people show up and they're standing in your classroom. They say, we have a question for you. Would that be intimidating? I mean, it could only, I guess, get more intimidating if the queen herself showed up. You know, then you'd really be quaking in your boots. But this is a power move on the part of the, the leaders of the nation. 
They chose the time and the place to do this, and they personally show up in order to make a power play on this. What they're trying to do is they're trying to intimidate Jesus. And they want to do it in front of a crowd so that when he fumbles, the whole crowd will see it. Um, that brings up, what, is, what do we mean by intimidation? Have you ever been intimidated by somebody? I have, where you get kind of mumbly mouth and <laughs> hi. What it is, is it actually is, is authority versus authority. So we have a certain authority in our lives. We feel comfortable saying something or, or you know, just being who you are. And then you meet somebody who you respect more, somebody who's got a higher position. Their authority now seems greater than yours. And so you're afraid to talk. And that's why you get kind of mealy mouth. It would be like if one of my theological heroes walked in right now, I would just kind of step off to the side and go sit down. You know, I'd, Their authority I would see as greater than mine. That's what intimidation is. So these Pharisees, or these, these uh, chief priests, scribes, and elders come in thinking they have greater authority than Jesus. We're coming to assert our authority. And so since we're going to intimidate you and show you that we have more authority than you do, our question is, where do you get the authority to do the things you've done? You tell us that, Jesus. And the, the result is he's supposed to quiver in his boots, or sandals, I guess. We had the discussion about barefootedness in Sunday school class. He's supposed to quiver in his sandals about this. Um, that was their power play. That was what they were hoping to do. And by the way, real quick, he says, uh, they, they ask, tell us by what authority you do these things. It wasn't just cleansing the temple. That would be this thing. It wasn't just teaching and preaching. It's all the things that you have done, Jesus, casting out demons, all of this stuff that we're not so sure about, healing on the Sabbath. Come on, dude. By whose authority are you doing these things? So they're questioning basically his entire ministry. So how can he answer? What are they anticipating as an answer? Well, they're probably anticipating one of two answers. He could either say, by what authority? I'm doing this by the authority of God. And then these guys are ready. They have got their, their theological questions lined up. Well, you, you said you're doing this on the authority of God. God said this, you're doing that. You healed on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. You did. They probably had a long list ready to go so that they could embarrass him in front of his followers. So if he said of, of God, then, you know, hey, you're either guilty of heresy or blasphemy. We haven't decided which yet. But they've already got that made up. That's, that's ready to go. If he says, I'm doing it on my own authority, in front of all the people he's teaching, they can tear that down in a heartbeat. Your own authority. So you've got thousands of years of rabbinical teaching that we've been expounding, and you're going to contradict it based on your own authority. Okay, Jesus, explain that. Defend that. How can you do that on your own authority? So that's probably what they were anticipating. And so that's why they come in in a power play and ask the question. This is what we want to know of you, Jesus. Explain that to us. What gets lost in all of this is what authority does Jesus have? Just, just ask that question, you know, the, on whose authority are you doing these things? These things have been pretty marvelous. And, and listen to just, I went through Luke and just look where it had, it talked about some of the things that Jesus has authority to do. So the first one is Luke 4.36. They were all amazed. He's, been, he's just started his public ministry. They're amazed and they say, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands unclean spirits, and they come out. So the authority that he has is to talk to an unclean spirit and say, out now, and they go. In, in chapter 5, Jesus himself says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man has authority to get, forgive sins. If someone sins against you, you have authority to forgive them or not. That, that's within your realm. 
But for Jesus to come in and say, yeah, you sinned against that person and I forgive it. That was one of the complaints that the Pharisees had. Only God can do that. And then Jesus' answer is, yes, you're right. But I have the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then chapter 10, he says, behold, when he sends his, his apostles out, he says, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. He has the authority to delegate to his apostles to go do these things. That means he has the authority to do it himself. And, and that's what he delegates to his apostles. This is the authority that they're questioning. So picture those chief priests with their decorative robes come strolling up and question this man's authority to do these things. Look at just John. I want to look at one, one other gospel real quick, John, because John is really clear about Jesus' authority and, and makes some very bold statements. John chapter 5, Jesus says, For the, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given authority, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So Jesus says, look, here's my authority. I have authority to execute justice or judgment because God has life in himself and I have life in myself. So I can do these things. That's tremendous authority. Jesus has the authority to walk up and judge somebody on the spot. Wow. In chapter 10, he says, he's talking about his own life. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. Who, ha who here has the authority to lay down their life, to end their life, and then to turn around and pick it back up after you've died? Nobody has that kind of authority. Jesus has that kind of authority. And where did he get it? My father has given it to me. That's some tremendous authority. I wish I had the authority to pick my life back up again. That would be incredible. And then John chapter 17 in Jesus, the beginning of Jesus' high priestly prayer, uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him, to all whom you have given him. Jesus has the authority to give eternal life. That is some significant authority. And where did he get the authority to give eternal life to people? He got it from his father. As his father gives him people, Jesus has the authority to give them eternal life. And then the, the verse that we refer to all the time, the, uh, stuck on the wall out there, Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth. So when they come and they say, we want to know by whose authority you do these things, do you see what they're playing? They're sticking a fork in an outlet. They are playing with electricity here. And they think they're playing a game. They think they're, they, they're going to outsmart Jesus in this. They're going to they're confront him in front of the people and confuse them. And so rather than a direct confrontation, rather than Jesus giving him what I just gave you, he says, he, he does something better. He takes their weapon and he turns it against them. Right? He takes exactly what they were trying to do and turns it right back on them. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of man? So instead of going into the argument with him, he says, let me turn this back on you. Now in front of this crowd, 
in front of this huge group of people, you tell me the answer to this. That's a way to take somebody's weapon and absolutely neutralize its power. You could go one for one and fight back and forth like in a boxing match, or you can just do, in, in jujitsu, I've never studied jujitsu. I'm taking this on other people's authority. If somebody throws a punch at you in jujitsu, you don't block it. What you do is you grab it and you keep it going. You pull them off guard. So when they throw the punch, they're expecting to impact you. What you're supposed to do is step out of the way and pull their arm. So they just keep sliding, and now they're thrown off balance. This is, this is exegetical jujitsu. <laughs> this is apologetic jujitsu. He's just taken their best throw and turned it back on them. So now they have to answer this question. So is this an evasion on Jesus' part? Is he just you know, ducking and jiving? Or is he actually engaging in the debate? Well, no, because uh, according to one of the commentaries, counter questions were common among rabbis. Rabbis loved to debate. They loved to argue. And so a rabbi would say, well, what about this? And it was quite common for another rabbi to say, well, that's interesting. What about this, too? And so this was a common tactic in the day was to throw another question at him. They should have seen this coming. So it's not like Jesus is trying to avoid the question. He's actually giving them the answer, if you think about it. So you guys want to know about me and my authority? Okay, you explain to me John the Baptist. Why, why does he pick John the Baptist? Because John was popular with the people, so that's cool. The other reason, what did John do? What was John's calling? John shows up in the wilderness. He starts baptizing people, a baptism of repentance, and the whole time he's saying, there's somebody coming after me. And when he comes, I'm not fit to untie his sandals. This one who comes, ah, look, I'm throwing water on you guys. He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist is constantly pointing to Jesus and his authority, his role. So when Jesus turns and says, you explain to me, John the Baptist, if they'll answer him, they'll have their answer. John has been um, consistent in pointing to Jesus the whole time. So that same commentator makes this, this interesting statement. He says, even after his death, John the Baptist functions as a forerunner to Jesus. Even after Herod has lifted his head off his shoulders, John is still standing there going, him, this guy. So that's why Jesus appeals to John. He says, you, you explain John the Baptist to me, and you have your answer. So how do they, so those are two questions. Here's the answer. So they discussed among themselves, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, well, then why do you believe him? And if we say from man, all the people are going to stone us, for they were convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where, where it came from. And so Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you can't answer this question about John the Baptist, who's a forerunner, who's pointing to me, I can't possibly answer your question. You're not going to believe it. You're not going to hear it. So until you resolve who John the Baptist is, you're not going to resolve who I am. So go back and, and focus on John for a little bit. So he refuses to answer that. One last quote from the commentator. I never do this, but he just had so many great quotes this time. He said, sometimes agnosticism is really an evasion of the truth. So, you know, people will say, I'm an atheist. And when they say, I'm an atheist, what they're saying, if they're being honest and, and accurate with the word, is they're saying, there is absolutely no possibility of the existence of God. 
It is, it is categorically impossible for God to exist. I'm not just saying I doubt it. I'm saying it's impossible. There are very few atheists who are that honest. Uh, Penn Jillette, the magician, is, is that honest. Um, Bertrand Russell, who was a great mathematician and an atheist, even he backed off and said, well, I'm ag agnostic because I can't be certain. So he was an atheist. He hated the idea of God, but he, he was at least being honest when he said, well, I can't categorically say he doesn't exist. That's not possible. So agnosticism sometimes is a way of chickening out. It's a way of not saying anything. So if you ask an agnostic, is, does God exist? They say, well, I don't know. Isn't that convenient? How do you argue with, I don't know? They're not making a statement. <laughs> you can't say, look, if you, if you disagree with that God exists, let me, let me provide some evidences for you. They say, oh, yeah, that's nice. They haven't made any positive statements. So agnosticism really is a way to evade the truth, and that's exactly what we see with these, guy, with these guys who come to Jesus. So tell me about John. Oh, well, we don't know. <laughs> you do know. You absolutely know, and you refuse to embrace the truth. So this, this, this picture that he has with them, it just is the first step in these rising, escalating conflict between Jesus and the leaders. Um, and it, it's not here to just show us how superior Jesus is. This, when I finished preparing the sermon, I looked and I said, well, well, isn't Jesus very clever? And aren't the Pharisees really dumb or the, the Sadducees and, and those guys, aren't they really stupid? Okay, so how do you apply this? When I'm doing Bible study, private or, or for sermon prep, my last question is always, so what? You know, so you study something, you read this great thing, and then you get to the end and you go, well, so what? How does it apply? And this one, I'm looking at it going, well, this can't be the end of it. It can't just be Jesus is really, really clever. Um, there's got to be more going on here. So I think what this is here for, and all three synoptic gospels include this story. Um, I think the reason Luke throws it in here for us is to show, first of all, primarily that rising conflict. But secondarily, Jesus is the master and we're the disciples, right? If you're a disciple of a master, you follow what the master does. And sometimes the master will sit and explain to you, this is how you do this move in jujitsu. And sometimes the master will stand up and say, throw a punch at me and show you how to do it. So I think what's going on here is, is Luke includes this at this point to show the escalating conflict, but also to prepare disciples of Jesus in how to engage in conflict like that as well. And so what the, the application, I think, for this has to do with how we do apologetics. How do we engage people who are hostile or opposed to Jesus Christ? Well, look to the master. How did the master do it? Um, there are times when people will come to him and challenge him, and he'll actually answer them. There are times when people will come and challenge him, and he'll blast them for being hypocrites. And then there are times like this where he'll throw the question back at them. And so the first step, I think, in apologetics is, is a, a degree, a measurement of wisdom. How should I answer this person? If they have a legitimate question, how do I engage them with that? Is an answer the right answer, or is another question the right answer? And you know what? It just takes wisdom. You just have to be prepared for it. I was reading a book by this apologist who's... Um, whose great method is, is to just ask questions. <laughs> he just constantly throws questions at people. And uh, he said, you know, the first thing I do when I get into these situations is I pray. Lord, how do I answer? And then I look for an end. I look for some way to engage the person, to get them to think. 
to get them to think beyond what they've already presumed. And so um, that's what Jesus is showing us here. He's, he's telling us, look, when you come across these kind of hard things, sometimes the, the right answer is not an answer. It's another question. And so try that. Um, when we were at Antelope Valley College, we were handing out water bottles and wishing people well for, um, for their finals. Uh, this one gentleman came by. He was not there to talk. <laughs> he was absolutely not there to talk. He came by and he announced, well, my mom was involved in all these different religions. And I was like, oh, and, and you know what? They, they, all these religions are wrong. They're all, they're all saying each other is wrong. They keep telling uh, you know, how each religion is wrong. And if God really is God real, then, then he must be for all of us. And so they must all be right. And, and your religions are all fake and they're all wrong. And he storms off. I said, you want a water or a bottle? A bottle of water? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so he took my water bottle, but he wasn't there to talk. He didn't have any interest in engaging or discussing. I said, well, you know, we're not here to say all other religions are wrong. We just wanted to offer you a bottle of water, <laughs> you know. So in that case, there's nothing you can do. You know, they're not, they're, they're not interested in discussing. He just wanted to come and barf on us. And so thank you, brother. We really appreciate that, my friend. Uh, go and be blessed. Thank you for the barf, <laughs> your religious uh, regurgitation. Well, that's a good one, religious regurgitation. Um, there was another fella that came up, and when he saw Trinity on the banner, he exploded. And so he grabbed Jim Wildeman and started throwing all these questions at him, barraging him. And he was just angry. You could see he was frustrated. And uh, finally, Jim had gotten to the end of anything he could possibly say to the guy, and, and he tagged out. <laughs> Tim, <laughs> he tagged me. And so I stepped up, and the man said, I have, I, I have one question for you. I want you to show me in the Bible where Jesus said, I am God, worship me. Those five words, those five words only. That's what I want you to show me. I looked at him and said, well, I can't do that. Well, then don't worship Jesus. And he stormed off and goes, worship Allah. And he was just so mad. Another case, there was no way that I was going to engage this guy. He was just mad. It's like, okay, well, you know, you want some water before you go? Need a pencil? <laughs> I, can't, I can't argue with you because you're not willing to discuss. But had I prepared this, this verse before we did the ABC outreach, I might have said, when he said, show me these five words in the Bible. I might have said, I'll tell you what, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. And maybe could have slowed him down enough to, to, to discuss with him. What I, what I wish, you know, it's always, you know, three days later you figure it out. What I wish is there was a story, Ravi Zacharias, you know who Ravi Zacharias is? He's an Indian, an East Indian who converted to, to uh, Christianity, and he's a great apologist. He is really good at engaging. He, since he's Indian and not white, Anglo-Saxon, he gets invited into things that I would never be invited in because I'm part of the problem, whereas he's some continental and so he's, he's different. But he's a very solid Christian. Proud to say he graduated from the same seminary I did. So go Trinity. So Ravi told this story, and I heard it on his podcast years ago, and I still remembered it, so I had to go look it up. Ravi was in Amman, and he was speaking at a YMCA. He was going to share some at a YMCA. But for some reason, he needed a passport photo probably needed to get his visa renewed or something. So he grabbed an interpreter, and the interpreter took him to a shop to get his passport photo done. And when he comes in, the place is filled with Muslims. They're waiting for their photos or something. And so the, the shopkeeper looked at him and, and said, oh, Hindu. Hindu is, um, is uh, Muslim for Indian. So they just assume he's a Hindu. And the translator said, no, no, he was, he's Indian, but he was, he's a Christian. And, and Ravi's just kind of squirming. <laughs> uh, this is really not the right place to talk about this. 
And the shopkeeper looked at him and said, what do you think of Muhammad? And Ravi just was like, well, how do you answer this in a predominantly Muslim nation, surrounded by Muslims in a Muslim shop, how do you answer this? And so he did what the Lord did. He looked at the man, he said, do you really want to know? And he said, yes, what do you think of Muhammad? He says, let me ask you a question. Was Muhammad a prophet? Shopkeeper said, yes, he was a prophet. Was Jesus a prophet? Yes, Jesus was a prophet. Can a prophet ever be wrong? And the man froze because he realized if I say yes, he could be wrong, then I have a problem with Muhammad. And if I say no, then I have a problem with Jesus. And so he said the man froze and just kind of thought about it for a while and finally he said, no, a prophet cannot be wrong. He said, okay, so Jesus is a prophet, Muhammad's a prophet, yes? Yes, yes, they're both prophets. Prophets can never be wrong, right? Yes. He goes, okay, if that's true, Jesus said he was the only way to God. So either Jesus is wrong, and if Jesus is wrong, Muhammad's wrong, because Muhammad said Jesus was right, or if Jesus was right, Muhammad's still wrong, because Muhammad says he's the only way to God. And so the man is standing there with the photos in his hand. Robbie grabbed him and ran out. <laughs> and he, in later reflection, he said, um, I probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but the man asked a legitimate question. And so he turned the question back on him. So if the man's going to argue at this point, he's not going to argue with Ravi Zacharias. He's now got to go argue with Muhammad because Muhammad said Jesus is a prophet. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Muhammad said that's not true. So which is it? So the picture I'm trying to paint here is, is not the only way you can ever do uh, engage in apologetics is if you're really clever. It's a blessing to be really clever. It's also a curse. I've, I've seen some people who are too clever for their own good sometimes. What I want to use this to encourage us is, is first of all, um, there are times where you, people will have legitimate, honest questions. And there are times where people will, will not want to talk. They're just angry. And then there are people who are just genuinely not interested in talking to anybody. And sometimes those people are the non-Christians, and sometimes they're us. And so let's just be honest with it. Sometimes we're just not in a position or in a mood or in a place to talk. And one of the problems with apologetics is sometimes it's portrayed as if you're not doing it constantly, 100% outgoing, on the street corner every moment, then you're doing it wrong. And I don't think that's right. Jesus made us. God made us, right? He made our personalities. He made us extroverts or introverts. He made us shy or outgoing. He doesn't make us shy and introverted and say, now go out and be an extrovert. So it's not like we all have to go out and be Ravi Zacharias. I'm not that clever. What God has told us, though, is when the time arrives, when the chance comes, you can engage people and talk with them. And you don't have to have all the right answers. Sometimes all you need is the right questions. So one of the things I love watching Lisa do is when she talks to somebody and they mention something about God, she'll go, oh, well, where do you worship? That's a great question. That's a, that's a door opener because you don't want to say where do you go to church because maybe they don't go to church. Maybe they go to synagogue or to uh, a, a temple or something like that. So you just ask the question, where do you worship? And that can then just notch the conversation into a spiritual place where you can now begin to ask a few more questions and lead the conversation into a place where maybe you can share. And, and that's not standing on the street corner with a bullhorn. God bless people who do that. 
But that's not what we necessarily have to do. Sometimes you can just ask a question or two to, to open the door to a conversation. You're already engaged in the conversation. You're already talking with the person, so it's not like it's cold you know, off the street. And then just a question or two. And the next thing you know, you could wind up in a place where they're, they're pouring their heart out to you. Oh, yeah, you know, I don't worship anywhere right now. I, just, I had a bad experience with the church, and it really burned me. And, you know, my mom is really sick, and my kids are not doing well. And suddenly they will open their life to you. And that's when you can then care and, and legitimately care. Don't go, oh, here's my target. My, my door is open. Now I can do the sales pitch. You have to legitimately care about these people. And if you legitimately care, they sense that. And then they can warm to that conversation. Or if they're really not interested in religion, they might just go, oh, I don't do that. Hey, did you see this car that, you know, and they'll change the subject. And that's okay, too. You don't have to tackle them at that point and say, no, we're going to talk. You can give them room to just be who they are. So Jesus is demonstrating it to us here. You can ask that question. But the, uh, the book that I read um, is called Tactics by uh, Gregory Kokel. Um, and, and he it really is advocating just asking questions. So one of the things that he says is he says, I encourage you to consider this strategy I use when God opens a door of opportunity for me. I pray quickly for wisdom. Then I ask myself, what one thing can I say in this circumstance? What one question can I ask? What seed can I plant that will get the other person thinking? Then I simply try to put a stone in the other person's shoe. So the example at the beginning of the book is he's in Wisconsin, and he stopped at a fruit stand beside the road. And as he's uh, getting some of the fruit, this lady leaned forward, and a, a pendant swung out of her shirt, and it was a pentagram. And he said, oh, that's interesting. Is that... Uh, got any religious significance for you? That's an innocent question. She could have said, no, nah, it just looked cool. She said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a pagan, and this is, represents the five elements, earth, wind, fire, and spirit. And so he said, really? So you're a pagan. That's interesting. And he's just asking questions. So she's explaining, yeah, I'm a pagan, and I believe that you know we have to protect all life. And he says, oh, then you must be pro-life. She says, oh, no, no, no. I believe that women have the right to choose. And he said, well, but that's killing a child. That's, that's, you know, I thought you were for protecting all life. And she says, oh, well, I would never have an abortion because I don't want that to come back on me. But you know, I think each woman has to make their own decision. And so that just sparked this conversation where he, sp he wound up spending way too much time on the roadside talking with her. But by the end, she's like, wow, I never thought about that. Wow, that's, a, that's an interesting point. So he took her own religion and threw it back at her and said, well, are you being consistent? So that's the kind of thing, it doesn't take a, a very clever person to do these things. Jesus is demonstrating for us, even in a hostile environment, a few questions can disarm your enemies. So they come in in procession, the elders, the scribes, the chief priests come in in procession, and they're ready to ask Jesus and demonstrate their authority over him. How do you think they left? I think they had their tails tucked between their legs going, oh man, okay. We really have to kill this guy. We've got to do something about this. I mean, he, he, with just a question, he, he deflated them. And so the, the, the important part, I think, in this, just to wrap this all up, is exactly what Gregory said, pray. When you get into a conversation where you think you might be able to have a chance to share the gospel or even begin to share the gospel, pray. Just pause for a moment. Lord, I need your help. Open my eyes. Give me some wisdom. Give me the right words. Make this person a follower of Christ. Just pray for them. And then listen to them. This is hard for me. I, get, I tune out. 
I get bored. I get really short attention span sometimes. Or I'm thinking about the next argument. And, and don't do that. Just listen to the person. Love them. Just, just pay attention. Focus on that person. What are you saying to me? And then wait and see if the Spirit doesn't open up an avenue for you. I think I shared before, when I was in Burma, um, we were at this, this one house, and we kind of had presented the gospel, so we were entertaining questions. This was Jen uh, Kremeray and I. And one gentleman stood up, and, or no, it was, I think it was a young lady. She said, I, I'm, I'm the evangelist in this church. It's official position as evangelist. They kind of do children's church and, and outreach in that role. But anyway, she said, um, one of the problems is the, the Buddhists here tell us that Jesus, before he appeared in the temple at 13, came to Burma and learned Buddhism and came back and he taught Buddhism. How do we answer this? And she sat down. <laughs> and I couldn't quite reach Jen to get her into it. So I just prayed for a moment. As she's asking this question, I prayed, Lord, what am I going to say? I haven't a clue. There's nothing about Jesus' early years in the Bible. I have no answer for her. And as clear as a bell, I hear in my head, Luke 2.52. Okay, well, let's see what that says. Flipped over, and it says Jesus grew in stature before God and man. I went, oh, okay, so here's the thing. Uh, Jesus was a good Jewish boy. If he grew in stature between, or before God and man, the God of the Hebrews would not be pleased if he went and learned another religion. And the citizens of Israel certainly would not have been pleased if he had gone and learned another religion. So Luke 2.52 is your answer. We don't know what he did, but we know he didn't go and be a bad Jew. And, and that was one of those times where God just answered in the most miraculous way possible. And do you notice today, still to this day, I remember the exact verse. Because it was so incredible to me. I was like, I'd never seen this happen before. He gave me the answer I needed. He can do that for you. He can answer your prayer in an instant in a way that you're not expecting it. So don't be too intimidated when the, the chief priests show up with their fancy robes and come to tell you exactly how your religion is wrong because it's wrong to tell other people they're wrong. And I'm here to explain that to you. <laughs> don't be intimidated by that. You have something that they haven't got. Jesus has sent behind you the Holy Spirit. And he promised you, I'm going to send the comforter, the Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon you. And don't worry about who you'll answer in that day because he will give you the words. So you walk in. There, this is that intimidation game. My authority is greater than your authority. Really? My authority is God. And then one last point. It is totally, perfectly, absolutely okay to say, I don't know. Sometimes we get into these discussions and we feel trapped because we can't say, gee, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I, I, I don't really have a clue. Uh, that same Burma trip, somebody asked um, Daniel Holmquist, the previous pastor, quoted from Proverbs something, and he says, the, the proverb says, uh, the leech uh, lives in the city, and he's got two daughters, given, given. What does that mean? And I was just like, oh, Daniel, I'm so glad you got that one, and not me. It would be perfectly, he didn't, by the way, he had an answer, but it would have been perfectly okay to say, I have no clue. <laughs> of course he had the answer. He's Daniel. <laughs> um, it's okay to say I don't know. And what I could recommend is if somebody asks you a really tough theological question and you honestly don't know, you could say, you know what, I haven't got a clue. I haven't, I haven't looked at that in a long time. Can you give me your phone number? And I'll look it up and I'll, I'll see if I can't find a better answer for you and get back to you. Now you have contact beyond the moment. 
So I don't know can actually be a doorway into something much bigger. It also shows some degree of authenticity on your part because you're not a smarty pants who knows everything. And by the way, I want to just let you all know, you are not smarty pants who know everything. <laughs> and neither am I, so don't come to me and say, what is the leech leech thing about? I'm, I'm not. So this is our master doing apologetics. This is our master engaging in evangelism with a hostile crowd in front of a bunch of people who he's trying to lead into the kingdom of God. And he did it with finesse and authority and grace and left them an opportunity. If they, at that point, wanted to come back to him later and say, you know what, Jesus, you really smoked me on that. I haven't got a clue. John appears to be in a prophet, and he's pointing to you. And he left them an out that they could come back to him and say, we were wrong, you were right. He left the opportunity open for him. So you don't have to shut down every conversation with, you're going to hell. You can leave it open, and it's okay. So this is our master doing apologetics. This is our master evangelizing. We can do this too. We, can, we probably won't be as finessed and as graceful as Jesus. News alert, you are not Jesus. But he is our master, and we're his disciples, and he's showing us how to do apologetic jiu-jitsu through questions. So as we engage the world around us, and, and like I was praying, this nation is in a turmoil right now. People are just shouting and screaming at each other. We're beginning to shoot each other. I mean, it's just a mess. Into that, we can come in and speak the gospel of peace. We can say there is another way here, folks. There's a better way. We can look at each other with respect and honor, and we can demonstrate that. And our master has just shown us how. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this powerful demonstration, for showing us exactly how to engage your enemies and our enemies those who are opposed to you, without having to be brutal and mean and feel smug. Lord, I pray for all of us that you would fill us with humility. And by humility, I mean gospel humility, understanding rightly where we stand before God. And in light of that humility, being able to share. Lord, we pray that you would, again I ask, would you please send revival to this nation? And Lord, if you would, start here in the Antelope Valley. And Lord, if you would, please start with this church. And may we see the fire spread throughout the entire nation. And may we see America once again turn back to a better course. Have mercy on us, we pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us faith in the promise that you made that the Holy Spirit will give us answers in the moment that we need. I pray that you would help us to trust that promise that you've given us, to rely on the gift of the Holy Spirit and to engage the way that you have taught us. Lord, we ask all of these things not so we're smart, not so we look good, not so we can be clever in, in difficult situations, but Lord, we ask these things so that Jesus may look huge in, our, in the light of those around us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.